What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience. The podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we are interviewing the amazing Mike Diamond. Mike Diamond is a television personality, director, life coach, and interventionist. He's known for his work on the hit TV shows New York Inc. and Bondi Inc. Tattoo Crew, which is currently nominated for a Loggy Award for Best Reality Series. Originally from Perth, Western Australia, Mike got off to a bit of a rough start. Battling undiagnosed dyslexia, he started using drugs and alcohol at the age of 12. At age 16, he was expelled from college and finished at Melville High School. Immediately after graduation, Mike moved to Sydney, Australia, and enrolled at the Actors Center. He got a job at a local clothing company, which unbeknownst to him at the time, would change his life forever. Lady Luck was on Mike's side when a customer at the store handed him a green card lottery ticket. Mike won a green card in 1997 and made the move to Miami, Florida. Shortly after his arrival, Mike landed a role on the CBS sitcom Grapevine from director David Frankel. After Grapevine, Mike moved to New York City, where he worked on various projects, including a guest star on Sex and the City. Mike wrote, created, and starred in a VH1 pilot with former Stone Temple pilot and Velvet Revolver frontman Scott Wayland. Splitting his time between New York City, Miami, and L.A., Mike had regular gigs performing stand-up at Caroline's on Broadway and the Comedy Store. Mike was properly introduced into the tattoo world when he appeared on Miami, Inc. He later became the store manager for his good friend Amy James at Wooster Street and starred on season three of New York, Inc. Mike then headed back to his hometown where he wrote, directed, <coughs> excuse me, produced, and starred in Bondi, Inc. Tattoo Crew based on Bondi Beach. Although Mike has had plenty of highs in his life, he has also had his low moments along the way. Mike has battled cocaine and alcohol addiction for the majority of his life. The defining moment came at the height of his career while shooting a TV show for VH1. To the outside world, Mike looked like he was living the dream, but on the inside, Mike was spiritually bankrupt and miserable. He realized that if he didn't turn his life around, he was going to die. April 16, 2006 was the day Mike Diamond got sober. Since then, Mike has literally helped hundreds of people on the road to recovery. He is on beck and call to all his clients and friends, helping them through their life problems and battles with addiction. That just touches the surface of Mike Diamond, guys, and we're really excited for you guys to hear this interview. Mike's a wonderful person. He has a badass accent, and he knows a lot about sobriety, the mind, meditation, fitness. You guys are really going to dig this episode. Let's dive in. Well, it's like, you know what? That's the funniest thing. I'll tell you why. Because years ago when I started, when I got sober, I'm 15 years sober in April, and I came out. To, what, 12 years ago and told people I'd smoked crack, did heroin, did drugs, did crazy stuff. And when I was working as a sober coach and doing interventions, like, you can't do that. I'm like, why can't I do that? Like, it's anonymous. And I'm like, oh, you go into a meeting, an anonymous program, you don't talk about other people. But if I want to talk about my story, it's my story. No one can stop me because they want to have the shame and stigma about the story. Now, 15 years later or 12 years later, 13 years later, like, oh, thank God you came out about it. And all that. I'm like, well, this is the funniest thing. Every person used to ring me up or talk shit about me when I was using. What? I can't talk shit about myself. <laughs> I can't tell people I'm sober now. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, shut what up. kind of shit is that? My life. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, well, they're all talking about it. Like, oh, maybe you smoke crack. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And 
And now I don't. Yeah. Now I don't smoke crack. Well, and in our business, that's what gives us our creed is our our street smarts of being addicts. Like if we don't share that, then, you know, what are we just a lab coat telling other people what their problem is? We come from uh, experience. Yeah. And I just think that gives us that. It just removes the shame and the stigma that is so much stigma of being an addict. I'm like, bullshit. There's no stigma. We're all having some kind of addiction. No one is not flawed. We're all flawed somewhere. The person that's like, oh, you're an addict. Like, yeah, you've got a sex problem, dude. Or you, you're a codependent. You're this. So it's thing. I think it's like being honest about that stuff. When people get afraid of it, I'm like, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. You're human. Embrace your potential. I love that. We were about eight episodes in before I looked at Dal. I said, you know, it's funny. We've been podcasting with all these people. Not once have we ever told our own stories publicly like this. And it was like a huge breakthrough to actually go there. And now I feel like I tell my story all the time. But there's so much power in that. That's what people relate to. That's the feel good story that they want to hear. They want to hear the struggle and the overcoming and to get to where you're at. They don't just want to hear you from a place of authority telling others how it is. Yeah, and I think it's based on the hero's journey. You know, it's like when you look at anything, you, no one, look, I, I was coaching someone the other day and they were getting frustrated and they're like, you know, all these people get this and all these people get that. And I said, like, wait, stop, stop. I said, if there's, a, if there's Mount Everest and someone's got a rich dad or mama and they, that, that, they're dropped on the top of Mount Everest, right? Because, yeah, and I go, and you've got to climb it. Like, yeah, and I go, don't you realize the person climbing it is going to meet the person one day that got dropped on the top? That person that got dropped on the top has no resilience, no adversity, and doesn't know shit about life. And when you meet that person, it's like being a paper champ. You could be great on paper, but then you meet that person that can really fight, and you're like, oh, this is different. (laughs) This is what it's like to be punched in the face. Yeah. (laughs) And life's going to punch you in the face. And life's going to kick you in the guts and you've got your own, you've got to go through that process yourself and get winded and go, Oh, what do I need to do to adjust my life? You know what I mean? And, and I think by being honest and now, you know, I always find it's really, it sucks when people, I was talking to someone the other, uh, the other day. And, you know, when I started doing interventions, I went to the top guy in the world and, and the top guy, you know, he, he was sober a long time. And then I looked at a guy called Warren Boyd and Warren Boyd was a great intervention, still is. And I was like, well, he does hardcore interventions. I'll do that. So I went to guys that were way better than me. I shut up and I listened. So if they're like, go here, pick this guy up, transport this guy, detox this guy. I just didn't listen. I just did it, did it, did it, did it. So I was trying to explain to someone, I was like, you can't learn that on IG. You've got to learn it from an OG. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I said, I learned it from the OGs. There was code. If they gave you a job, you shut up and did it. It wasn't about posting about it. It was going into the trenches of being of service. And I said, that's why no one can take away that from you. If you've earned it in battle, it's yours. That's yours. You, you, you have self-esteem because you acquired the skills and the mastery to do the work. Do you know what I'm saying? And self-esteem is built on skills and knowledge and wisdom and then passing it on. And right now we have this feel-good Instagram, social media crap, and we all know it's all fluff. You you look at it, you're like, dude, come on, seriously, come on. We're not stupid. (laughs) You can't just come out of nowhere. Life doesn't work like that. Yeah, you see that a lot. Yeah, you can track people back. You're like, oh, what have you done? Well, you haven't done anything. Okay. Yeah. And that happens all the time where it's like you think because you can like rationally understand it that you get it. You know, like I can understand boxing and golf like in theory, but I suck at both those sports. (laughs) You know, like I just suck at them. (laughs) You know, what's funny you say that. You know, what's really uh, I find the older you get, there is a big gap between professional and amateur in anything you do. And I always say to people, mastery becomes boring after a while. And what I mean by that is Floyd Mayweather, for example, he's thrown that many jabs. He probably never needs to throw a jab again. 
but every day goes to the gym and throws a thousand jabs. And that's mastery. It's getting up in the morning and having empowering daily rituals, meditating every morning, doing inventory every morning, reading something positive, being of service. After a while, of course, it gets boring. <laughs> Watching what you consume, you know, what you eat, what you see, your environment. It could get boring, but the, the boring is where the magic happens because you're consistent. Well said. And that's what, you know what I mean? That's what people can't get. It's the repetitions over time that then you look back, you're like, look at my foundation. Well, isn't that the key to sobriety? It's just doing the same thing, staying sober day after day after day until it's just no longer a problem or an issue. <laughs> well, isn't it, you know, but I think the beautiful thing about sobriety is, and this is what I loved about what I used, it was so simple. It was so simple, right? You sur I surrendered, right? My life was unmanageable. I turned the spirits I were taking, got rid of those and turned to a higher spirit, right? A higher power. I'm like, well, one spirit's not working. I better go for the other spirit. And it was pretty simple and all the coke, that's all disempowering. And then I was like, well, what do I do? Oh, you go to meetings. Okay, what do I do? Read the big book. Okay, what do I do? Get a sponsor. Okay, right? Get commitments. Okay. And then how many meetings should I do? How many, how did you use the guy? I said, I said, bad. He's like, do three meetings a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay. I just did it. I didn't question like, cause when I was, I was a professional drug addict. I was a professional coke user. I was good. So why not be professional in sobriety? So what are the best do? What's the 1% of sobriety? What are the, what's the Navy seals of sobriety doing? Okay. So that's what I'll do. And I didn't like question it. I just went, well, that's what sober people do. And I got around people who were 20 years sober when I was counting days. So my group was guys that were 20 years sober, right? That were the savages. Oh, that's what you do. And then people say, well, how'd you get sober? I'm like, well, what did they do? It's not magic. No. <laughs> if, you may, if you're a better chef than me and I walk in the kitchen, and I'm just a, like a shitty guy prepping. I want to know what you're doing to be that good. Just take it. <laughs> no, that's 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 the best way to put it. And and the biggest problem I see is the people that don't want to accept that as the truth. And those are the people that don't get sober or have a big uh, have difficulty in staying sober. And it's 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 so strange because it is so simple when you talk about it and. You know, when I got sober, it was the same thing. I shut up, then I listened. I was like, I don't know how to do this. So if you want to tell me how, here I am. Let's do it. You told me to jump. How high do you need me to jump? <laughs> right. And isn't it crazy that when you really break it down simplistically, if I don't drink and I don't do drugs and I'm feeling disturbed and I do inventory to manage my emotions, right? I look at my fear, I look at my resentments and I go to someone that's got more time than me and talk through these things. So my life becomes manageable. And if I'm ever disturbed and I'm just self-aware enough or emotionally intelligent enough to look at the disturbance, how am I going to use? I'm not. You know, as simple as it is, if you really work the steps and then you expand on the steps with other knowledge, you, you can't, you can't relapse because you show up and you just deal with life. You can't screw it you up. Know, I, no, no, you take responsibility. Yeah. That's it. It's just ego. Mm -hmm. It's all ego and people. And I think that's the most important thing. Someone said to me the other day, what's the greatest thing that, you know, I've gone through stomach surgery. I've gone through lawsuits. Um, I don't even think of drinking or using. I don't even, it's not even, it's like, why, why would I drink? Right. What's that going to fucking do? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I'm like, well, how can I solve this problem? adding this alcohol, I'm not going to be clear. I sleep well because I've got a clear head. I'm like process, 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 process. And it's such a simple, dumb thing. You know, it, it, it's like, it's like I said to someone the other day, if you want to run a marathon, they're like, I'm like, you, and you never run a marathon, you could do it in six months by just going to someone that's run marathons, model their behavior. Right. And they go, yeah, but, and I'm like, then you're already done. Then you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You're done. You just, yeah, butted yourself out. I'm the same as sobriety. Yeah, but you don't know my life. Shut up. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. 
Again, you know what I mean? that's where again where the ego comes in. They think they're special, they're different, it's not the same. Um, and I think that is ultimately what does everybody in is the ego. Or I have these tools. I can now go be a successful drug addict um, because I have tools to rein myself back in now. It just seems to be ego that always gets them as far as relapse goes or success. Yeah, you know what I think is really incredible you just said? I think that I always say rehab can, can fatten people up for another run. <laughs> that's clever. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, well, I went to rehab. Okay, that's great. It's like when people do, I was dry for October. I'm like, you were dry for October. Wow. <laughs> like you went to the gym in January. Nice. You know what I'm saying? It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I, you know, people like post that shit, I'm going dry for 30 days. I'm like, that's great. I appreciate you going dry for 30 days, but why don't you commit to something? Like go, go see if you can really do it for a year. That's why I always say to people. And that's I always say to people, if they ask me if I have, if I have a problem, I said, well, do it for a year. Don't drink and do drugs for a year. See how you feel. See if your life gets better. Yeah. Yeah, I see that with a lot of marijuana. Mm. A lot of people with pot. I'm like, dude, just don't smoke pot for a year. And then if you want to, smoke pot. (laughs) You're not going to want to. Pot is a really, really dangerous thing. I got the worst. I've chewed acid. I've done mushrooms. I've smoked crack it didn't mainline heroin i snorted it i've done everything pot used to f- me up more than anything wow me too the last yeah me and, too and they call it like natural and the least harmful no. because it's kind of insidious that way right yeah i just mentally it yeah. really really f- my brain up like it did i did not have a good time smoking pot no, I'm not saying, and this is what people, I had to do a whole anti-vaping talk and anti-drug talk for the school system. And when I was doing my research, what people don't understand is like if I've got, you know, stage four cancer and I go to a doctor and I get medical marijuana, it's only 0.4 TC, uh, THC. What you're getting on in the, in the, the shops and on the labs is like 70 or 80% THC. That's it's, crazy. it's crazy how strong it is these days. Like, and then you've got hash and you've got a uh, waxing and I'm like, you're making it legal. Do you know what? I mean, Dr. Raymond's a great brain doctor and he did this whole thing. He's amazing brain doctor and he works with addicts. He works with everyone. And he did this whole thing on marijuana and marijuana out of all the drugs screwed up people's brains and memories worse than any other drug. Wow. Well, I think yeah, that goes. Did a whole video. I think that goes unnoticed because it doesn't have such intense, immediate, harmful uh, destruction. Like drinking and driving, you're going to crash your car and kill somebody. Or heroin, obviously, you can have an overdose. But marijuana is very insidious. You know, you only get a little high. You can control it, and you don't realize that it's chipping away at your mental capacities or facilities, your emotions. All those things are just getting super dulled. Yeah, it messes you up. Yeah. So ask some questions. Go down the rabbit hole. Whatever you want. Okay, so I, I, uh, we, we both She's have prepared. a lot. Yeah, yeah, we both have a lot of tattoos. So I have high interest, and I've seen all the reality <laughs> tattoo shows. Uh, how how was it as far as your sobriety with the reality tattoo shows? I know tattoo shops can infamously have you know drugs and alcohol in them, that sort of thing. You know what? I was good. So I, I pro- what what my advantage was. When I first got sober, I didn't go to a rehab. I went to meetings and had to open a bar 30 days into my sobriety. Nice. So I, yeah. So I really, um, it wasn't a hard transition because I knew Army and these guys for a long time and they respected that I was sober because they knew me when I used. So I think for me, it was a little different because everyone kind of, I kind of set the thing, even when I opened the bars, I'm like, I'm sober now. And people are like, all right. Mike, if Mike says he's sober, he's sober. Do you know what I mean? So I think for me, I drew a line in the sand. I think um, if I didn't, for someone else's journey, I think it would be dangerous. Sure. I think that the set and the settings are, are pretty, you know, it, it's it's not as dark as a bar, but it can get pretty dark and debaucherous in that world. And I think if you don't, you know, if you don't have the right core group of people that respect your sobriety, I think, I think you go down pretty quick. 
You know, you've got, to me, it's, it's the core group. It, it's the people that you can be honest with and say, look, I can't actually function using and drinking anymore. You know, I need help. Can, you know, can you support that? And if, if you don't have the right support system, I think you, you, you can't do it. I don't think you can do it alone. Agreed. And yeah. that's, uh, you, you know, know we're, we're big believers in the community as far as helping yeah. with the sobriety in the group and not doing it alone. That's why we put CrossFit into the program, because there's a healthy community that no matter where you live, you could get into. And they're like minded people that want self-improvement yeah. and betterment. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, mean, I got through it, but I think it would be, a, mm. if you're in the wrong shop, you'd be in trouble. Oh, I bet. I guess with the bar, like, do you think that might have, like, hindsight 2020, obviously, but looking back at that, I always, I, I do clinical work, so I work with the, the clients one-on-one, -on -one, and I notice with alcoholics, they're, they tend to have to confront the alcohol a lot more than maybe we have to confront heroin, you know, or... or uh, like a trap, not, I'm, I've never been forced into a trap house since I've got sober, but alcoholics, you're at the grocery store, you're at dinner and it's at the gas station. It's everywhere. Family gathering. So did you feel like that might've been a pro for you having to confront being just in that environment right away? Like it was just something you had to accept. And since you accepted it sooner than maybe most people, you were, you grew faster that's a really great question. And I think, you know, looking back on it, because you, you can connect the dots looking back, like Steve Jobs always says, um, I think you're right. And I think everyone's journey is a little different. I think coming, I grew up in a small town, moved to America with nothing, you know, mentally and physically abused, very self-reliant, and I'm very autodidact. Um, I learn and I can figure it out myself. So if someone kind of, I see, say you tell me to read a book, that's all you have to do. I don't, you don't need to wake me up every day to read the book. If you tell me to go to meetings, I go to the meetings. I'm very self-motivated. So for me, it was like, all right, I need to stop using. And what I was, I was in the bar business forever. So I thought I'll do 30 days and get detox and get healthy by myself. Got rid of my roommates, changed my apartment, my settings, got the meetings down. Then I had an opportunity. I said, okay, I'm in New York City. My apartment's 2,800 bucks a month. Wow. I don't have a family here. I've got money. I, I got bought out of one place because um, I owned a bar with Scott Weiland back in the day from Velvet Revolver. And I got out of that place. And then I was like, okay, I need to open a bar. This is why I got an investor. The vest was like, can you open another place? And I just sat with my sponsor. It was really good. And I said, all right, how do I do this? He said, what? I said, and it was very interesting. I don't, I take information and then I go to people with more experience. So everyone was telling me at the meetings, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I went to my sponsor. He's the, you know, he was 15 years sober at the time. I said, I, I need to open a bar, but I'm sober. What do I do? And he's like, do you want to drink and do drugs? I said, no. He said, then open the fucking bar. <laughs> Perfect. He's like, That's kind what of are you, a tennis coach? You know, are you a tennis coach? I'm like, no. He goes, you know, what's what you do? And he said, earn enough money. And if you want to move out of this business, then get out of it. But don't run from what the reality is. And I think for me, what you said, I think that was the best lesson because I had friends that thought they could get out of the business, but they didn't do the work. I did the work twice as hard knowing that I couldn't relapse. I had no choice. I can't fuck around in this business. I can't, I'm in a bar. I'm around drunks. I got to go face my demons. And because I did that, it was, I could go anywhere. My wife drinks, she's not a heavy drinker, but I can go to bars. I can go anywhere. I'm always comfortable. There was no triggers. I was like, right. eh, I don't do that. So I think it's, I think the vision of myself had changed. I no longer saw myself as someone that drank, you know, and I think, I think you have to have that clear vision of who you want to be. And I just looked at people that were sober, that were just badasses. I said, I had got around some guys that were just so cool. And I was like, I want that. This is fucking badass. Like that guy. And I would just ask them, what do you do? When do you get up? What do you read? How many times did I want? And I just literally copied them. I copied the best people. That was it. I didn't make it up. I just stole from the best. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, I think that's how you get better. I mean, for us as a rehab, yeah. 
not to take away from what you're saying, but that was what uh, we did. We at one point were number one in the field, but I always had intense interest in going to other places. But what are they doing that we should be doing? What are they doing that we could be doing better? And just constantly striving for more learning, more understanding and, and putting yourself around greatness to push yourself to better. Because when you get complacent or arrogant or self-important, there's that ego again. You're just going to head down the other side. So I, I love what you're saying because we just got to be open to we don't always know best. In fact, most yeah, of the time you know, we probably don't. Yeah, you, you nailed it. This is what I always say. If the purpose is right. So my purpose is to inspire, educate, and motivate people and help any addict that's suffering, sick and suffering, right, to make a more empowering choice. So whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm on a podcast, whether I'm doing a blog, how can I affect you in a positive way by my story and give you tools? Now, if I'm ever stuck, I do a simple thing like this. So if I'm stuck in a situation, whatever the situation, I first of all identify where I'm not getting the desired result in anything I'm doing, right? Because I I'm obviously want something, but I'm not getting it, right? So there's a reason. Then I gather information. And when I gather, it's a lot of reading, going to people that I feel have their shit going on, you know, watching podcasts, and I gather, gather, gather. Then I sit, and I don't talk to anyone, and I incubate. I sit. From the incubation, I'll get inspiration. From the inspiration, I take action. And I always follow that process. And I do it early in the morning. 3.34 in the morning when it's quiet, I do a shit ton of meditation, loads of reading, and then I incubate on that, and then I'm inspired to take the right action. And if I follow that, and if I'm ever disconnected from my source, my higher power, I just come back to process. All right, I need to get more information. I need to talk to someone else. I need to read something. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I only get stuck if I'm not bringing in fresh information, allowing myself to incubate, to get inspired. I love that. Yeah, I like you know? that too. And it sounds like um I mean it sounds like what you don't do is emotionally respond immediately. <laughs> That's like the Emma. biggest the biggest takeaway is how do you create space or like a pause? And once you can yeah, do like, that, yeah, it, then you're golden. You nailed it. It's stimulation, right? Stimulus, pause, response. Right. That pause could be a week. Do you see what I'm saying? Like Ben, I think it was, was it Franklin? One of the great old presidents used to say, if you want to start an argument with someone, write it in a letter, put it in your drawer in two weeks, reread the letter and see if you still want to do the argument. Mm -hmm. He said, I never, never sent a letter out. Never. Do you see what I'm saying? So it, it's my reaction or am I responding? There's a difference between responding and reacting. Yeah, huge And difference. I have to know my set. You know what I mean? So what I do is come back to me because when I'm frustrated, I'm just really overthinking shit or I'm in, I'm in scarcity. There's some kind of scarcity. Yeah. No, that's perfect. Did your – so I guess my question for you is like I think from my own meditation practice, that's where I kind of develop the pause, right, of like observing the mind, watching the mind, and, and seeing the bullshit for kind of what it is and – that's where I developed that pause and that less reactivity. What did, or when, I guess, when did you get into meditation and what have been some of your biggest takeaways from it? I think you know it. So mindfulness really works for me. I did TM, but it didn't click for me. Mindfulness was a better practice for me, knowing the kind of personality I have. I, I, I can have a short fuse. I can admit that. Me too. And <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I can go off the handle. And so... I've been meditating on and off since my early sobriety, 15. I was messing around with meditation when I was a kid, a really young kid, but I didn't get it. I didn't I know. I didn't have a good coach. And then once I latched into mindfulness, I think that practice, I do it in everything I do. Whether I'm running, I run mindfully. When I'm eating, I eat mindfully. I'm always stopping and resetting. And look, I look at it like this. Like, so our sympathetic nervous system is fight, flight, and freeze. Okay. The parasympathetic nervous system is rest and digest. I only need to be in emergency mode, right, when I need to be. So if you look at animals, right, we humanly think we're smarter than animals. But when we look at an animal, we're not smarter. So if you see a zebra, 
and it's on a lunch break in the Serengeti and then it senses the, uh, the lioness, it goes, oh, shit, if I don't take off, I'm lunch, right? So it uses fight, flight, and freeze. It uses its sympathetic nervous system. But the one thing the zebra won't do later, it won't sit at the watering hole ruminating going, I hate lionesses, I hate lionesses, I hate lionesses. That's a human thing. Because it doesn't thing. have a developed... <laughs> right. Why? Because it doesn't have a developed prefrontal cortex. So our rational prefrontal cortex right? And our emotional brain, our amygdala, right? They have an amygdala. They don't have a developed prefrontal cortex, but that can get us in danger. Because mm -hmm. if you cut me off in traffic, guess what? I go and chase you in traffic all day. And then mentally you ruined my whole day oh, yeah. only because I'm ruminating, right? So for me, the mindfulness approach to come back to breath and reset in my daily practice in the morning Whenever I'm feeling disturbed, I can identify why I'm off and go, oh, come back to breath. So I have to do, come back to breath. As simple as that is, it's brilliant. So <gasps> fight, flight, or freeze, <sighs> come back to breath. Come back to breath. And I said, for that practice, for me, it saves me because I, if stimulus is coming in, information's coming in, I have a baseline where I can go, oh, I don't like feeling like this. I don't like feeling the adrenaline running through me. You know, I don't like feeling the anger, the rage, the resentment. All right, I'll just come back to my breath. <sighs> just come back. And that's all I have to do. And then and that's the basis of mindfulness. It's a brilliant, brilliant system. You know? How does that work for you with fitness? Because a lot of times we need to dig deep and get that adrenaline to get that heavy lift or that fast time or whatever it is we're trying to do. Most of us who do fitness, there's a competitive edge there. How do you, do you use mindfulness or do you try to use that other flight or fight kind fight, of stimulus? So, that's a brilliant question. So what I do is if you're doing HIIT training or something like that, obviously you're pumping, so you, you, you're in fight, flight or freeze. But you, I think it's dangerous if you're not centered when you're doing that stuff. And that's why people get injured, mm -hmm. right? when they're, they're, they're allowing that adrenaline to take them further than they should. I don't pull muscles. I know my capacity. I can push my heart rate to 170, but I don't put it to a point where I'm going to die. Do you see what I'm saying? Like I know, right. so I, I kind of know now my baseline. So I try to stay in the pocket so my, that, that emotion doesn't take me first. No, that's a good way to put it. Mean? Yeah, it's kind of like you have the experience to know that threshold. It's kind of like the balance of using it. Like, okay, I could tap into the adrenaline. I can tap into that fight, fight, or fees, and but I don't let it consume me type of thing. No. And you know, you know who does it really well? All right, so do you know the athlete George St. Pierre? Yeah, 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 yeah. UFC he's fighter. the perfect – he's always in flow. Yeah, he and is. I think it's the great Mikhail, I can't pronounce his, Machikikov, he's got this crazy name. He explained what flow was. Michael Jordan was another guy that was always in flow. He was running at red line, but he wasn't. He was actually in flow. So there's this unique position where you know your center so well. And George Mumford, who I'm friends with, taught Jordan uh, mindfulness. Wow. And Phil Jackson, yeah. And it's like... When you get in flow, you're not in your sympathetic nervous system. You're pumped at an amazing level, but you, there's this balance between just letting it. I'm at a high level, but I'm not killing myself. Mm -hmm. And I think flow, and when you're forcing, I think when you're redlining, you're forcing. Yeah. No, I, could get behind I, mean? that. I could get behind that for sure. Yeah. Well, and then there's all this fallout from redlining, you know. You used to get pissed, yeah. You'd leave the gym, throw something, throw up. There's always some, some, something that occurred from pushing just too hard and then finding, like you said, what that baseline is and always hitting it so that you're getting maximum but not going past it where it's creating a bad effect. Well, yeah, you know, it's like if you look at a guy like um, Usain Bolt, right? Usain Bolt was like the fastest man in the world. Mm -hmm. But why does he never look like he's straining? He's tapped into something, right? He never, ever looked like he was smiling when he was beating everyone, but he was the fastest guy. So there was a point, he never looked exhausted. 
he'd run 100 metres in 9.78 seconds. You're like, he just smashed a world record, but he's not tired. So I think he mastered that point of no, and I think that comes from self-awareness of knowing your engine. Yeah. You know, if you, if you train correctly, look, I always say this when people say I ran a hundred and I ran 150 days straight I ran 10 miles a day and I pushed my baby in the stroller the whole time. Okay. Someone said, could you do it? I said, I'll try it. I did it. And they said, how do you do that? I said, I run to heal, not to hurt. I like that. So I find a pocket when I'm training, knowing where I'm at every day. Because every day is different. My body's going to feel different, right? You can't redline every day, but I can get the maximum out of my body if I know my body enough and my breath. And, you know, Sunday's a little tight. All right, I've got to, I've got to work in, warm up a little bit more. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And just let the body tell me where it's at. And if I'm kind to it, it'll be kind to me. Well, and that's where the mindfulness comes in too, is that awareness and, and feeling where you're at instead of just assuming you're just as good as you were yesterday or not as good. You're just always <laughs> being present with yourself. And then you're like this every day and you pull it, you pull hamstrings and you mess your back up. Because at the end of the day, let's think about it. Look, we want to, we don't want to age. We want to be at an, an older age and not be crippled with arthritis. We want to feel good. We want to feel strong. We want to feel centered. And that comes from just being self-aware, you know, of how, how things flow in our body, what we should and shouldn't eat. Do you know how we're digesting our food? Are we using the food we're digesting or are we just consuming crap and it's getting stuck in our you know, body? And, you know, so I think it's, yeah, flow is everything. Yeah, no, I like that. So I had a question for you, Mike. I know you were saying you do coaching. So is that yeah. kind of like mindset coaching? Is that sobriety coaching? Is it fitness coaching? Is it all three? What does that look like? So I do, it started off with sober coaching, but then a lot of people I was working, well, working with weren't actually addicts. Right. They got sober and then they're like, oh, I don't actually have a problem with this. And they didn't. They weren't <laughs> like, we know addicts. For sure. So then it went into more like life coaching. And, and I base everything on um, Maslow was the first one to talk about self-actualization and reaching our full potential. And that's really what it is in life. Everyone's got a calling. Everyone has an inclination and an authentic self. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is if someone feels stuck or they've hit a point where they're not, you know, they're, they're making disempowering choices, I try to slow them down and figure out their map of reality. And when I say map of reality is you, we're all sitting here, but before we arrived here, we've gathered a certain amount of information, right? From our past, from what we've read, from what we've eaten, just the people we've hung out with. And that map has caused us to make choices. We've manifested our reality by how we choose to think, feel, and act. Mm-hmm. So if I look at someone and say, okay, well, what's your map? And they, there's a famous saying, the map is not the territory. So what they mean is that, If I show you a map of New York, that's not New York. You go to New York and you visit New York, you absorb the territory. So I have to look at someone if they're making a disempowering choice. And if we look at two mindsets, there's the growth mindset and fixed mindset. Okay. So I take the growth mindset and expand on it and call it a flexible mindset. I, you have to be flexible in life because there's just, it's uncertainty. It's always changing. Like they say, you never stay in the same, same river twice. Every day is different. You don't know what you're going to be faced with. So when I look at someone's map and I go, okay, so what choices are you, have you made up to this point and why? What has motivated you to make these choices? And once I gather, so I go to the person first and then I gather, gather all the information. And then I figure out, you know, whether it's personal history, whether it's the family, whatever their maps are, most people have limited information. I expand that by giving them more empowering information from books, podcasts, do you know what I mean? To yeah. start de-weeding because you can't flourish if you don't de-weed. Well said. Right? Simple thing in a garden, right? You want to have roses, there's going to be weeds all day, you know? So you've constantly got to be de-weeding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I do, which is true, yeah, thoughts. And so then what I do is then I say, well, what do you want and why do you want it? And I work on people's purpose. And purpose comes from service and purpose comes from inclination. And most people deny what they're inclined and they're good at because of fear, because of culture, because they just, they, they get stuck being unauthentic all their lives. 
because they grow up and they have a calling and it's beaten out of them through schools, through parents. You should have been this, you should have been that. And I tell people, it's not about money. Money is an effect if the cause is right. I know a lot of people that are lawyers, doctors, and all these things, and they're miserable because they're just doing it. It's not a job. It's a calling. You've got to find your purpose. And then I work on people daily and teach them how to set goals correctly in all areas of life. And I look at their, the way they process because everyone processes different. And then I figure out what are some more empowering tools to help them get closer to reach their full potential. I love that. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. That's super important. And I think the thing you touched on too is like, as a counselor myself, what I've noticed at first, it was addiction and sobriety. And it was all about sobriety and addiction. But now here I am seven years later counseling 45 hours, 50 hours a week. And none of it has to do with drugs or alcohol. None of it. We never talk <laughs> about like... drugs or alcohol. <laughs> Maybe it's people that some are addicts, some aren't addicts. How do I just work with everyone? And if there's an addict, obviously that's great. I can really, really, they can identify with. But if it's just a regular person that I thought was an addict and they stopped drinking and they're actually clear-headed and fine, but they've got other things, whether it's diet, you know, I mean, I've healed myself from ulcerated colitis. So I know every food source I'm constantly studying and reading and trying to help people be the best they can be. I love that. So here's my question, because uh, I've been reading your book and I, I love it. Your big purpose, uh, since we're talking about purpose, all you want to do is come to the United States and be an actor. And uh, yeah. quite amazing <laughs> with the green card lottery, how that actually happened. Like the <laughs> odds are just phenomenal. So like life is telling you, yes, this is your purpose. It lined up for you in the most amazing way. But then something changed along the way. You're now doing this and and was it your purpose changed or this was always your purpose and uh, you just didn't realize it yet? Or what happened with that transition? That's a great question. Um, all right, so here's the thing. It's, it's so great you asked that. And this is a crazy, I'll, I'll, this is the funniest thing. I was always good at acting and I knew acting could get me out of Perth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the green card was the message, but this is the crazy thing. So when I was 18, getting out of Perth, moving to Sydney, my older cousin, um, he's, you know, schizophrenic, bipolar, not well. And he's 10 years older than me. I went to visit my aunt and he just got out of a mental institution and he was in the room and I went, my auntie and uncle, they've passed now, we're very close to me. And I was having dinner with them and they're like, you look, your cousin won't come out of the room. And he came out of the room. I was like, hey, he's like, hey. So we spent like six hours together. My aunt at the time, you know, she pulled me aside. She's like, okay, here's the deal. He doesn't talk to anyone. You're the only person that can connect with him. Is there any way you could stay in Perth? I said, I can't. I'm going to acting school in Sydney. I've got to get out of Perth. It's, I got to get out. They're like, we'll give you anything. They were very wealthy. I'm like, no. They're like, what do you say to him that connects? And I'm like, I don't know. I just talked to him. Fast forward, I get to Miami. And doing the acting stuff, and I've always been of service to people and helped them. And I was sober and wouldn't, didn't have a problem with the drinking at the time. I would get sober, have a few drinks, and it wasn't affecting me. But we know the disease is progressive. And I met a Navy SEAL, and he used to come to the club and what I was working at and beg for change. He, he got kicked out of the SEALs because he was smoking crack. So one New Year's Eve, I said to him, how's this? I want to, uh, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to get you a hotel room for a week, get you off the street. I did that. And then I, he disappeared for a couple of weeks and he came and saw me again and asked for money. I said, I'm not going to do that. You're going to meet me on the beach at five o'clock. I finish at four. I said, if you're an ex-Navy SEAL, right, you're going to start, we're going to train together. I'll pay you to train me, but I'm not paying you to, for begging. He got sober and he trained me, right? Wow. We had this great connection. And I got him work and all this stuff. So there was something in me being of service to people that I just had an innate ability to help people, right? I was like, it just feels good. So what happened was, is there was a part in my acting and I did stand up comedy and I, was, and I loved that, that I was like, all right, I can do this and I could do podcasts and I could shoot shows. But until I got sober, I realized, 
I'm just doing it as a job because I can. And I don't think my calling is to just show up and work. And my sponsor is a famous actor. And he said to me, you can do this, but this is not really what you want to do, right? I go, no. And the ironic thing was I got hired on a comedy troupe to do stand-up comedy. And then I got a deal to really jump into doing interventions and sober coaching. And I sat with him and I said, this is going to sound crazy. I've got this comedy deal. I said, I don't want to do it. He's like, well, and I'm like, I just don't think it's me. I can do it. And I can admit I can do it. It's, I can do comedy. I can do TV. But I'm like, it's not me. I, there's something in service that I have to do. Now, the funniest thing is, this is what's crazy. I'm shooting a show with Dave Melsa and Bloomberg TV wants to pick it up. Um, and if someone would have told me that doing the inspirational stuff would then go into TV things, I'd be like, that's so stupid. But that's really, I think it gave me a base to speak well, the acting school. And, you know, I'm a great speaker, I tour as a speaker. I think that's where it was. It needed to give me my start and learn how to articulate and understand people. But it's not, if, I'm, if I make films now, it would have to be, based i wrote a really good script called the fixer um about a guy that gets so but it would have to be more empowering yeah do you know what i mean not just to show up for a job so i think it, it, it serves me massively i mean it really has helped me having that training and knowing it but it's just there's something about helping others that's way more empowering to me Love that. And obviously we can totally relate. I mean, that's why I've, I have always said, why do I want to go do anything else? I don't like this is this is where my and I feel so fortunate because it's not like coming to work. You're actually just helping people uh. and watching them get better. And what is better than that? Great when the money's there. But more than that, you're saving lives and empowering people and helping people. It's just the best. It's less selfish. I found when I was acting, it was about me. Yeah. No, that's and beautiful. I was hustling for the job. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're okay. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say I love the the, I love that the takeaway of like the acting helped you deliver the true message. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and you know what? You just nailed. This is so crazy. So, my second book is intense. Like I only touched <laughs> on stuff in the first book, but this is crazy. So, being dyslexic, I read this book called The Dyslexic Advantage, and I'm super creative. Like my right brain is crazy, mm -hmm. but at almost a kind of a freaky level, like I can really write quick and get things done. So I wrote the second book in six weeks and I wrote 65,000 words in six weeks. Wow. A lot of words. When the pandemic hit. Yeah. When the pandemic hit. So double the size of the first book. And I gave it to a friend of mine and they're like, let's walk it into CAA. I'll get you a hookup. And it didn't feel right. So I called another friend and I said, look, I need a really... I've written the first draft, but I, want, I need a really, really big editor. So I connected with this huge editor. He read the first draft. He said, I'll edit it with you. I said, okay. He's edited 600 books. Wow. He's like the Yoda of editing. He's an OG. <laughs> yeah, he's the OG, not IG. Not, I, not so IG. He goes, yeah. <laughs> so you know what he says to me? He says, look, here's the deal. He goes, you're a really good writer. He goes, but do you want me to, you want me to edit this? I said, yeah. And he said, hey, do you really want to be an author? And I said, you know what? Yeah, I do. I do. And he said, we're going to have to rewrite the whole book. I said, are you serious? He goes, I'm the best in the business. Are you up for it? I said, you know what? Let's do it. It changed my whole life. It took me back to acting school when I'd have to do monologues, when I'd have to really do the process. But that training taught me how to write. We had to rewrite the whole book. He threw seven chapters away and said, there are other books. I had to rewrite five new chapters. He would give me a paragraph and say, give me 5,000 words. Wow. Rewrote it, 63,000 words. Okay. Went through the whole thing. I looked back on the book now and I was like, if I didn't go to acting school, I wouldn't have been able to write this book because it taught me to slow down when I used to do monologues. It taught me to rewrite Shakespeare when I used to have to sit there and write it in my own words. It taught me to think about the audience and not myself. So I didn't write this book for me. I wrote it for you. And he schooled me on that. He goes, that's bullshit. You're writing for yourself. Write for your audience. Stop writing for yourself. You want to be an author. It's not about you. Don't write for ego. So it's been 
the second book's done and we start book, I start book three in April. And now I've got, you know, some really heavy hitter agents, you know, like looking at it that are like the big dogs and the process of going to acting school, doing stand-up comedy, all these things taught me craft. You know what I'm saying? I didn't think I, I, it's kind of like when Steve Jobs said he got thrown out and he went to Pixar and took that class. And then he realized the animation was going to help. You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't know it was going to lead to this, but now if I make a film, the film is going to be 10 times better than when I left acting school because I have the addiction base. Do you know what I mean? I know how to write a story with an underlining theme to empower people. I couldn't do that before. Wow. That's, that's a crazy story. That's, that's super crazy. I love hearing that. I love, uh, I mean, I guess my first question is I want to know about the second book. Um, but if I had a question hey, about bef- it, yeah, yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just tell me about the second book. Second book is dark. It's really dark. Nice. I actually, this is what I'll do. I'll send you guys, uh, the, the second book before it comes out. You guys can get it. That'd be amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's Love super dark. I went to the first book. Yeah. The first book, my, the publisher said, please don't go too dark on your story. This one's hardcore. I made it very hardcore, talks about addiction, talks about my issues, talk about my using. And then the second part is all about practical tools. It's more of an extension of the first book, Um, a lot more practical tools to help people empower themselves. I go deep into, you know, the brain, how to, you know, get the right foods, how meditation affects you, the theta brainwave, how to reprogram your subconscious mind correctly. And just different tools I've used to really, you know, I hack. I, if someone does it, I, I, I didn't go to Stanford, but I'll test myself. I'll mm-hmm. take products. I'll do things. I'm like, this works. This is how I did it. But then I make sure it, it lines up. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it, it, I think that's the biggest thing, right? There's academics and I appreciate academics, but they don't work on themselves. You know what I mean? They go to Stanford, they go to MIT and they study everyone else, which is cool but I want to see the person do it. I, like Tim Ferriss. He's one of my favorites. I love Tim Ferriss because he'll go and experiment with stuff, but then write about it and give you logical shit to use. Wow. So it's, a, yeah. Well, Hey, I appreciate you sending that. We, uh, of course we're stoked. Yeah. I love a new yeah. book. Yeah. Maybe we'll do book yeah, club with it. it. <laughs> we, 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 do, it. we have a book club where we read a chapter every week and then we sit and talk about it. And I find it's amazing because it's digesting. It's other people's opinions. It's a, really great way to like read someone's work and really understand it from a lot of different angles that maybe you personally wouldn't have seen. Yeah. It's awesome. But I think the question I had prior to like the surface level of like wanting to know about the book, the real question, or I guess, yeah, I guess the real question was with the, like, what was the difference between writing a book that you wanted people to, like writing the ego book versus writing for the audience, like what level or what degree changed from that? Like to me, that sounds just like mind blowing. Like I, if I was to write a book, yes, it would be for the audience, but I feel like deep down, I'd want them to think that I'm smart, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) that's how I would feel. You know, um, I, that's a really good question. I, um, now when I do things, I try not to open my mouth or put something on paper unless I know the effect it's going to have on you. Sorry, you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're here. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so I think, I think people, there's a lot of, I don't want to say wank authors, but people write <laughs> for ego. Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. And I think, and I think uh, this is my blessing. This has been my blessing and my curse. I've always gone to people that were so badass and authentic that I couldn't bullshit it. I'm attracted to real. So when I went to the top editor in the country, I had to level up. When I did my first, you know, stand up gig, it was at the comedy store. Either you're good or you suck. Um, when I went to the sober coach to learn interventions, I went to the top guy in the country. So I get mentored by the best and therefore it's like, you know, 
if you want to be a Jedi at something, like my friends are Navy SEALs. I go to Navy SEALs. I train with them. I go to the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy because you know what? If he puts me in an arm bar, I'm like, that's what it feels like. So I guess <laughs> by not sugarcoating it, good mentors and de- deliberate practice, I can't send it off a, a piece of shit to a, a good editor. He just throws it. He's like, what, the, what is this? Don't put this out. Don't do it unless you can be of service. Don't do it unless I can empower you. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, it's yeah. just crap. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. That's a that's an amazing answer. It's like you have the accountability. It's like there's there's yeah. just these shiny Take responsibility. Examples. Yeah, they won't let and, you and do go, it. No, and and I and I and I go. You know what it is? Look, I was coaching someone the other day, and they were asking me stuff, and I said, "Look, if you want to know how to be successful, I'm gonna give you the blueprint." But I said, "You may not want the blueprint." <laughs> it's true. It's work. And I gave it to him and he di- didn't want to do it. He's like, I can't do this. I said, then, you know, I'm the wrong guy. Get a coach that's going to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. No one in my circle tells me what, what I want to hear. And that's why you love them. They tell, they tell me the truth. Oh, we yeah, need- they tell me the way it is. And, I, and you know what I love? Then I've got a real barometer. Do you know what I mean? I, can, I know yeah. what's good and I know what sucks. I had to write a 70-page proposal to, to the agents. And when I first wrote it, I was like, oh, I put a few pages in. The editor was like, no, we have to do about a 70-page proposal. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's a top author. He's like, dude, who are you working with? I said, why? And he goes, yeah, you, you got a real dude. I said, why? He's a top author. He goes, yeah, yeah this, is, this is a proposal. <laughs> and then ironically, this girl said to me, oh, can you hook me up with an agent? I said, send me your proposal. She's got a PhD in psychology. She sent me three pages. I said, do you want to check out a proposal? And I sent her mine. She goes, holy shit. I go, yeah, you've got a PhD. I barely graduated high school. I said, you know what I call that? She said, what? I said, destination disease. She goes, what's that? I said, you got your PhD and you stopped growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You never, destination disease is you think you arrive. You never arrive. Yeah. It's just a reset every day. That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. I think that's a perfect segue into one of my probably final questions as we're kind of getting closer on time here. But yeah. one of my final questions was I think a lot of people, like you said, right, like destination, especially us being in the rehab business, they think it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. I'm cured. I'm fixed. There we go. Destination disease. So for you, 15 years sober almost – what does your recovery still look like today? What does that still look like? It's hardcore. Up between 3.45 and 4.30. My body gets me up. It's 20 minutes of meditation, static stretching in the morning, um, hardcore weightlifting straight after that, journaling, then weightlifting, cardio for about 90 minutes while I read, right? Inventory after that. (laughs) I do everything fasted, right? I don't look at the phone. I don't look anything from 345, four to six. I don't look at a phone. It's all about inventory, goal setting, reading, and then it's all sobriety, positivity, writing, everything the same. I eat every two hours. I journal my food, um, morning meditation, afternoon meditation. I do a thing where I reset at every meal. So if I eat, you know, six times a day, two minutes, I sit mindfully meditate, pray, calm, get my body centered to absorb the food, gratitude. So that's an extra 12 minutes. And then I, at the end of the day, no devices, 7.30, 8 o'clock, just the way I, wait. I have an evening, morning routine and an evening routine. Sleep like a baby for six hours, back at it again. Ooh. I don't break cycle seven days a week. Same shit every day. Wow. No, no break on the weekend. No, I'm going to sleep Nothing. in. Wow. Nope. I don't sleep in. Uh, you know what? I look at it like this. You know what I love? I love the fact that I associate so much pain and regret for procrastination mm-hmm. that I never procrastinate. I don't take days off because every day is a new day. There's no day off. Right. Every day I get up and I just do the same. And I have a great life because of it because I have so much freedom because I can discipline myself in every area. I love that. I mean, and it's you- not work. It's not work. It's fun. I love it. I feel good all the time because I'm centered because I know I can't afford, I'm a heavy user. 
You know what I mean? I can make bad choices. I'm fucking crazy. I can admit it. Now I love that. But you wow. get the outcomes. You get like because you do those things, you feel the way that you feel or you get you have the things that you have because you do the things that you do. So why ever stray away from that if it's working? Well, and you've literally lived like 20 lives with all the things that you've accomplished in the amount of time you've been on this earth. It's amazing. And that wouldn't happen if you were sleeping or taking a break no. at the time. It's because you're so disciplined. You get so much done. It's really admirable. I said to the editor that I'm working with, I said, who's your best author? He said, I said, why? And I said, I'll write 10 books in 10 years. Wow. And he's like, all right. I said, I'm not fucking around here. I go, you're the best editor. Now I got you. I said, you ready to go? To the point that I was his worst author out of nine. And he tested me. He goes, first in the inbox, I work on first. He was putting so much red ink in my stuff. And I said, here's a question. Does anyone live on the East Coast? He said, why? And I said, well, I'm on the West Coast. If they got, that means you've got a three-hour advantage to get in the inbox first. I have to get up earlier. I was up at 3 o'clock every day. And here's another thing. Time, money, resources. I wrote, I write off my phone and iPad. I write it in notes when I get inspired if I'm running. I put it into a Word document, and then I transfer it to my iPad and rewrite. I don't have a computer. I don't need it. I do everything off an iPhone because people, oh, I need the perfect setting. I need the candles. I need bullshit. I write. <laughs> Get it done. Stop. Do you know what I'm saying? Like everyone's looking for the perfect place. There's no perfect place or perfect moment. There's now. That's all we have. There's is now. And that's why I, every day it's like get up and go and be of service. You know, I don't want this to die. I think my thing's dying. It's got 5% left. All right. Yeah. I'm all crazy. I don't want it to die on you guys. It's such a good podcast. It's super great. And we're really fortunate to have had you come on. Thank you so much. I think you're going to be able to help even more people, hopefully through our audience. And they can reach out to you for coaching or help. And you're also, I've noticed, uh, I have a little insider. You're starting a new, new podcast. Yeah, I'm going to do, well, I have one with Rob, Rob, you know, Rob Haley. I love yeah. him Yeah, with the dude. Recovery Today magazine podcast. He's the best guy. We he's, are such good he's friends. He's the man. Yeah. I love him. He I was love one him. of our I first guests out. and we, we love him. Yeah. Love him. I helped him out uh, last year during the pandemic. He was going through stuff and I said, let me get all you these cool celebrity guests. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah. And we just hit it off. We've become really close. He's a really, really, really good dude. I love him a lot. He's good people. Nice. So you're doing that podcast. You're writing your third book. What else are you doing these days? Got a supplement called Diamond. You can go to Diamond Life Fuel. It's a nootropic to help people with their mental health and physical health. I put that out. It's doing really well. Nice. Um, I so it's book two's done. Writing book three. I'm going to do two books this year. I got a show with Dave Melser called The Dose that's coming out on Bloomberg TV. Nice. I love Dave Meltzer. And yeah, he's the best. And that's it. I'm staying busy every day, just trying to be a service. Just and you're raising and... a three-year-old. He's the best. <laughs> he's he's I, I call him Scrappy, Scrappy Diamond, because he's like me. He's scrappy. He's tough. He's a savage. And he's he's. Let me tell you something. This is the advantage he has over anyone. At five years old, six years old, when I see what he's inclined to do. He'll have me coach him, he'll have mentors, and he'll get all the information I never got. I had to earn myself to master something and be of service. Amazing. He's set up for success right there. Oh, yeah. He's, I'm only have one kid. That's it. It goes to him. Yeah. All my effort, all my work goes to him. Well, and Speaking some of gigs, yeah. I'll take him with me. I'll do remote learning. I'll give him anything. He'll be able to see how to be of service from day one. He'll empower people from the beginning because that's something I had to teach myself. So I just handed over to him. Wow. Yeah. What a beautiful skill. Yeah. What a lucky guy. Although some might say he chose you for those reasons. So um, he did. He actually did. We know yeah. that. Yep. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I took yeah. my kids to all my different things. They grew up, you know, in rehab. <laughs> that's all they ever knew. They, it was normal life for them. My daughter even yeah, said to me awesome. the other day, like, how could I have a normal life? You would come home and say, you know what somebody died from today? Dust off. Don't ever do dust off. She's like, that's not normal. Kids don't go through that stuff at 10 years old. I was like, oh, sorry. 
<laughs> that's, that's reality, cool. though, man. You see these these horrors on the front lines, and you want to shield your kid from like the worst of the worst. So good. Yeah. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure, man, having you on the show, dude. This has been super interesting, super helpful. Um, just real quick, where can everyone kind of find you on social media if they want to follow you? Where can they get the book? Where can they find the podcast? All that good stuff. Mm. So uh, it's the Mike underscore diamond on social media. Uh, the book's on Amazon, Seven Steps to an Unbreakable Mindset. And the supplement, diamondlifefuel.com. Gotcha. Well, we'll have to get people going over there, man. Thank you so much for your time, dude. This has been such a pleasure for us. Thank you for having me, guys. And shoot me your address so I can send you some of the products. Oh, yeah, of course. Awesome. That'd be amazing. Love that. Great. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Have Thank a beautiful you, day. Thank you. All right. You too. All Bye. right, man. Take care. All right, guys. That's our show for today. We hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.